morning. For those of you who do not know me, and probably wondering where Steve is, uh, my name is Mark Vandenable, and the other guy that's going to talk to you today is Kemper Steele. I'm sure you know who he is. Uh, he's incredible, he's energetic, and I know you'll enjoy hearing from him, so I'm going to preserve as much time as possible. We all know he needs it, right? Uh, <laughs> two weeks ago, we kicked off our three-year strategic plan called Pursue. Uh, why three-year time frame? See, and contrary to my suggestions for Steve, I said we need to do like a 10 to 15-year strategic plan. That's job security, right? Because you always say, well, we're in the middle of our strategic plan. Um, but he chose three years because that's how long Jesus' ministry was. Uh, from his baptism to his death and the end of his ministry, he prayed to the Father in John 17, verse 4, and said, I have brought you glory by completing the work you gave me to do. And that's the same charge for us as a church over the next three years. No longer going through the motions, doing the same thing, expecting different results. No, we're going to be intentional about our compassion, our evangelism, and our discipleship. Kemper and I were part of the discipleship team uh, for the strategic plan that we were working on. And when Steve knew he was heading out of town on vacation, that's where he's at today, he's on vacation, um, he asked us to deliver the message on GROW. So that's what I'm here to do today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Last week, Steve talked about belong, which was the first block in our circle. It's also in your handout, which I left down there. And it's uh, the first message in the Life on Mission series. I wasn't here. I listened to it online, and I'm really sorry that I wasn't here to listen, uh, see it in person. He talked about how we were born with the desire to have meaning and purpose. The desire is strong and unrelenting. People with great intensity are looking for things in life that will give them that meaning and purpose. In this search, they looked at all kinds of stuff. Relationships, new cars, status, jobs. But very few end up holding on to real meaning and purpose in their hands. In fact, when people find it, it's nothing more than a photo op to make other people think that we have it all together. And overall, it leads to disappointment and further searching. And it really comes down to the fact that life without meaning, purpose, and mission isn't really worth living. And to look for meaning and purpose in all the wrong places will almost always leave us empty and dry. Our wor world is full of people who took the same path and feel the same way. However, Many times people get what they wanted, but when they got what they wanted, they found out that they didn't really want what they got. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? What good is it for us to reach our own personal goals if in the end we miss out on the very reason of our own existence? So does it really matter if we win the race, if we're running on the wrong track? But the good news is, and the good news was last week, that God has a plan for your life, and he created you for a purpose. So this morning, we're stepping further down that road in our message series, Life on a Mission. You were made to make a difference. Today is October 23rd, 2014. Welcome to day 15 of Pursue, and the second message in our series titled, Grow. Let's take a drink. A teacher asked a class what they wanted to become when they grew up. A chorus of responses followed. A football player, said Jim. A doctor, said Alfred. An astronaut, a president, a fireman, a teacher, a race car driver. 
Everyone except Tommy. Teacher noticed he was sitting there all quiet and still. So she said to him, Tommy, what do you want to be when you grow up? Possible, Tommy replied. Possible, said the teacher. Yeah. See, my mom's always telling me that I'm impossible. So when I get to be big, I want to be possible. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you, and we humbly come before you today. We are blessed to live in a country where we're able to do so freely, in a country where we can be anything that we want to be. We ask that your spirit fill this room of worship today. There are a million other places we could be this morning, Father. But we came here today to hear your word, feel your spirit, and to ultimately grow with others. Father, we ask for your guidance, and I ask that you help me say the words you want me to say in the way that you want me to say them. Don't let me get in the way. We thank you for all that you will teach us today. Amen. <clears throat> in the opening chapter of his book, Just Like Jesus, Max Lucado writes this. What if for one day and one night, Jesus were to become you? What if for 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, lives in your house, and assumes your schedule? Your boss becomes his boss. Your mother becomes his mother. Your pains become his pains. With one exception, nothing about your life changes. Your health doesn't change. Your circumstances don't change. Your schedule isn't altered. Your problems aren't solved. Only one change occurs. What if for one day and one night, Jesus lives your life with his heart? Your heart gets a day off, and your life is led by the heart of Christ. His priorities govern your actions. His passions drive your decisions. His love directs your behavior. What would you be like? Would people notice a change? Would they see something new? Your coworkers, would they see a difference? What about the less fortunate? Would, they, would you treat them the same? And your friends, would they detect more joy? How about your enemies? Would they receive more mercy from Christ's heart than from yours? And you, how would you feel? What alterations would this transplant have on your stress level? Your mood swings, your temper? Would you sleep better? Would you see sunsets differently, death differently, taxes differently? Any chance you'd need fewer aspirin or sedatives? How about your reaction to traffic delays? That one touched a nerve for me. Would you still dread what you're dreading? And better yet, would you still do what you are doing? Would you still do what you plan for the next 24 hours? Pause and think about your schedule, your obligations, your engagements, your outings, your appointments. With Jesus taking over your heart, would anything change? Keep working on this for a moment. Adjust the lens of your imagination until you have a clear picture of what that looks like. Then snap the shutter and frame the image. You see what God wants. He wants you to think and act like Jesus. Now let that sink in for a moment. So I was preparing this, and I... I read this story from Max, or the, this excerpt from the book, and it got me thinking not so much about that 24-hour period, but more so the next 24 hours, and what my friends would say the day after. Would they ask where the compassionate and caring soul from yesterday went? Would they comment about how kind and considerate I was and how that was a drastic departure from how I normally am? Kind of convicting. If you would look at the first verse in your notes, Ephesians 4.15, took this out of the me uh, message and read it with me. 
God wants us to grow up like Christ in everything. God wants you to do what? Grow up. And how does he want us to grow up? To be like Christ in everything. It's a natural feeling, right, for a father to want his children to grow up. And sometimes we want our children to grow up fast for one reason or another. Get out of diapers, get out of preschool, maybe to get out of the house. In the short time I have with you, we'll cover three points that I hope will direct us in the path of growth. And the first thing is to understand that it is not automatic. Transformation is not automatic, and it takes time. Growth is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's not like one day you're going to wake up and all of a sudden, you're Jesus. No, it's a process, and it's called discipleship, and that takes an entire lifetime. It's going to take the rest of your life for God to build the character of Jesus Christ in you and in me. Thursday morning, I was sitting in my office preparing for this uh, message, and I was looking out the window, and I was watching the trees blow. Thursday, it was, it was pretty windy out. And I was thinking, you know, in the same way a tree isn't planted and immediately has a full root structure and, and uh, mature growth, those things take many years. But yet when a severe storm comes and the wind blows really hard, which tree has a better chance of survival? A tree that's rooted in confidence, strong and secure, or one that's immature, a sapling that has little to rely on? And sometimes it takes a larger tree to protect the smaller ones from the force of the blow. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I want, to help each other with, I want us to help each other with the faith we have. Your faith will help me, and my faith will help you. In Proverbs 27, 17, iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. <clears throat> God uses people. He uses mentors to shape and sharpen us. People grow best when they're connected to meaningful relationships. What kind of relationships? Meaningful relationships. Are all relationships meaningful? No. To have meaningful relationships, we need to have things like being authentic, being real, taking off the masks, sharing the joys and sorrow of life, being honest and truthful about our weaknesses and admitting when we're wrong, and connecting people when they're off track, simply because we love them. God uses people in your life to help you grow, and that's why you need fellowship. You will never grow on your own. You need mentors to mold you, to sharpen you, to tell you the truth, to point you to the cross, and to be like Jesus. Secondly, it has a purpose. God's plan from the very beginning has, to been, has been to make people like himself. Now, don't get me wrong, and let me be clear. He's not saying that you're going to be God. You will never be God, and God doesn't want you to become God. He wants you to become godly. He wants you to develop his character. He wants you to think the way he thinks, act the way he acts, and feel the way he feels. He wants you to have his values, his moral character. And bottom line, God wants you to be like him. He wants you to be like Jesus. From the beginning, God decided that those who came to him, and he knew who would, should become like his son, so that his son would be first with many brothers. That's Romans 8. In your lives, you must think and act like Christ Jesus. Growing is also scary, and sometimes not all what we expect. I have a video for you. Can you pick me up at 6.30? Ah. Life can be hard, buddy. Okay. 
Not just because I love that commercial, but I have four kids. When the kid's driving around in his little car, good times ensue. But when the reality of driving his dad's car hits him, he turns away and picks a less difficult route. Nobody ever said the path would be easy. Nobody ever said the road would be smooth. In fact, one minute you're cruising around in your little plastic toy car, you're happy, things are going great, and like the kid in the video, you're thinking life just isn't getting any better than this. You don't get to answer the question, hey pal, you ready? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, reality slaps you in the face. Boss hands you a pink slip, tells you you're laid off. Your spouse tells you I don't love you anymore. Policeman comes to the door and says he's got your kid downtown. Phone rings, and you hear the words, there's been an accident. You go to the doctor, and he tells you it's terminal. There's nothing he can do for you. Or your mother calls from long distance and tells you that your dad just had a heart attack. You didn't see it coming. In the blink of an eye, the world's gotten darker and out of control. The Bible talks a lot about troubles. We see God's people going through their own difficulties from Genesis to Revelations. James makes a famous but almost crazy statement about troubles in the opening words of his letter. Dear brothers and sisters, whenever trouble comes your way, let it be an opportunity for joy. What's that all about? How can your troubles be an opportunity for joy? God wants them to do two things for you. First, get you to trust him. And secondly, develop Christ's character in you. God is more interested in your character than your comfort. He is more concerned about you trusting him. Why? Because he wants you to be like Jesus. Did Jesus go through troubles? Isaiah 53, 3, he was hated and rejected. His life was filled with sorrow and terrible suffering. No one wanted to look at him. We despised him and said, he is a nobody. Jesus had many sorrows and troubles when he walked the earth. And I think his greatest and most difficult time was that night in the garden. Jesus knew exactly what the next few hours would bring. He had, long, he had known long before creation. He knew about the pain, the rejection, the betrayal, and the cross. And he knew the sins of all mankind would be placed on his back. The question amidst all of this trouble was, would Jesus continue to trust God? Or would he get into his little car and, you know, Dad, I'm good. Would he trust God to know what's best for his life, even if it meant an extremely painful death? Sorry. And finally, it's possible. Remember that God is looking for progression, not perfection. I recall a story that Steve told during the uh, Welcome to the Grove class that Natalie and I attended years back when we first came to Maple Grove. And he told a story about a man that had gone to heaven, and while he was there, he was with Jesus, and he saw pictures on the wall. And there was a picture, and it was, it was pretty, but it was kind of muted gray tones, and you know, it wasn't vibrant. And next to it was the same picture, but it was full of color and fully vibrant and amazing. And he said, well, what, what is this one? And Jesus said, well, that is your life, and that is your life had you followed what I asked you. John 10.10, 10, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. And I was also thinking about the rope here. I know Steve mentioned it last week, and, you know, he said that you can't have one that goes on for eternity. And that, wow, that is really loud. And that the, uh, the red part uh, represents our life here on earth. And, you know, this is eternity here. But I, I'm reminded that there was a time that that's all my life was. This didn't exist. And I also would like to think that there's a piece of it that's black on the end. 
That's before I knew Christ. It's a, it should be a reminder of time lost and how precious that time is. Roger, Roger Chambers said, the average fellow is rather good at making a living, but not so good at making a life. God's words can make you what God wants you to be and have the life he wants you to have. But there's one big catch to this book, and it's truths being able to transform you. So we've got a few scriptures. Let's see if you can see what the catch is. Do not fool yourselves into thinking that you are a listener when you are anything but. Letting the word go in one ear and out the other. Act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are, those who are like those who glance in the mirror, walk away, and two minutes later have no idea what they are, what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks to it, is no distracted scatterbrain but a man or woman of action. That person will find delight and affirmation in the action. That's from the message. Anyone who listens to my teaching and obeys it obeys me as wise, like a person who builds a house on a solid rock. And don't for a minute let the book of Revelation be out of mind. Ponder and meditate on it day and night, making sure you practice everything written in it. Then you'll get where you're going, and you'll succeed. So did you catch the truths in this book about transforming you? What is it? The first one is you have to obey it by doing what it says and putting it into practice. And all you have to do is start. That start could be today when you make a decision about the direction you want to go, whether, to, whether or not to pursue him. That decision could be November 15th when we start and we roll out our Life on Mission classes. It may be in your own personal time looking through the Right Now Media site the church has provided. You know, I, I did a simple search the other day on the Right Now site, and it returned 115 Bible studies on Grow. If you haven't uh, accessed that resource yet, you can fill out your connection card, put your email address on there, and we'll add you to the list of um, people, of parties that are accessible to that site. There's a ton of media on there. It's all free, and it's available for your use. I highly encourage you to do so. And so finally, for me, I guess like Tommy, I too want to be possible. I want to have a life abundantly, and I want my picture to be the one full of color. How about you? All right, so a couple things um, before we get started. Um, everybody hear me okay? Everything good? All right, I know Bart's doing his wonders and the crew back there. Um, but uh, so first, um, in light of, of what Mark just shared with us and in light of what I'm about to um, share with you all personally, um, I do, I, I do want to, I just appreciate you, Mark, man, for being here with me. And, and I, like, I, I like not doing this alone. And even though I have a room full of people, it's good to have my brother in Christ to be able to do with us. I appreciate you very much. Um, for those of you all who don't know me, my name's Kemper. Um, I, um, as of two weeks ago, uh, after the epic speech on compassion uh, by my wife, I am now officially known as Julie Steele's husband um, at Maple Grove. Uh, yeah, it's true. I, I, I've always been that, and that's, but, uh, but, but now really more so when they come up and talk to me. Um, she's sick and not able to be here. Um, kids aren't here as well. I'm the only steel. 
Uh, so I'll speak for all of us. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, her birthday's tomorrow too, so wish her a happy birthday. You know, do some like on Facebook. I don't know how it works. Um, all right, don't they do that automatically or something on Facebook? All right, so, um, so that's tomorrow. I do have a script that I'm going off of. It's not because I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to say. It's just because you guys know me. I'll get really long-winded. You'll be here till dinner. I'll love it. You won't. Um, and, uh, and then I'll like owe you all Chick-fil-A or something, but it's closed. So um, anyway, um, so, so darn... Um, uh, and then um, one thing real quick, I'm going to be talking about something very specific. Um, Mark's already emphasized the November 15th classes rolling out the Life on Mission. We're going to roll out way more in January, but um, um, it's going to focus the grow class a lot on five habits of growth. Um, and so uh, keep in mind that I'm sort of targeting one of those areas. So, um, so I'm really sort of kind of giving you a sneak peek into some of that stuff as well, but on a more personal side. Um, so if we can, if we can uh, start with some prayer, because prayer is awesome. Um, Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I love you so much, and we love you, and uh, God, uh, have it, even though I'm sharing something very personal today, um, have it not be about me, but give you glory, God. Um, Have me, as Mark was saying, have me get out of the way, and have you come in here, Lord, because we know you're already here, but don't let us block you, Lord, from people hearing the word and hearing your message to them, Lord, and how it speaks to their hearts. We love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. amen. All right, so here we go. Um, I'm going to, hopefully I'm a little drier eyed Mark from the first service and that sort of thing. So we'll see what happens and stuff. So, um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. Uh, been that way my whole life. Uh, ever since I learned how to read, actually, I picked up a newspaper and studied the Atlanta Braves. I literally studied them. Uh, from worst to first, I experienced it all. Uh, as a young baseball fan in the late eighties, early nineties. Yep. I was a child at that time. I know. Let that soak in. Um, But um, I began learning about every team, not just the Braves. But even though I loved watching any baseball player, I could never really actually like any player in a uniform other than the Braves' red, white, and blue. Um, I still remember Greg Maddox, the Chicago Cub. Drove me nuts how good he was. In 1992, my pitching hero at the time, Tom Glavin, a Brave, of course, finished 20 wins, 8 losses, and a 2.76 earned run average. That's pretty good. For those of y'all who don't know, that's, that's real good. Greg Maddox, the Cub, finished 20 wins, 11 losses, and a 2.18 earned run average. That's all right. So who wins the National League Cy Young Award, best pitcher in the league, at the end of the 1992 season? Greg Maddox, the Cub. And I was so mad. Uh, I was sure the voters were going to see those three extra losses than Glavin, right? Those three extra losses, runner-up that year, mind you. And ignore the fact that Maddox was starting to shatter earn-run average records all across major leagues. But who was I kidding, man? Maddox was good. He was, like, really good. And I didn't like it one bit. Until the 1992 season ended. And Greg Maddox became a free agent. And he was looking for a new team. And I'm sure you can imagine my quick change of attitude when Maddox the Cub suddenly became Maddox the Brave. That's right, the newest Atlanta Brave and one of my newest favorite baseball players. And for the record, he won three more Cy Young Awards with the Braves for the next three years, and not once did I care they had a few extra losses than the other guy. The 2014 Hall of Fame inductee from Major League Baseball, Greg Maddox, was an artist on the mound. What he could do with a ball 60 feet, 6 inches away from home plate was sheer genius. Here's my home plate. I'm just going to show something in a second. In fact, one of his many nicknames was the Professor because of his cerebral approach to pitching. The most amazing skill he had with his pitches was his deception. You see, Maddox wasn't an overpowering pitcher. 
He wasn't a Nola Ryan. He wasn't a Roger Clemens. He wasn't a Bob Gibson. Maddox had a whopping high 80s fastball, which I know some of you guys are like, whoa, like my five-year-old throws up that throw. But that's actually not that intimidating in Major League Baseball. So he had to be a little more creative in order to get batters out. And so what he would do, he was had his catcher, as a catcher's mitt, for those who don't know, set up about six inches off home plate. So the strike zone is on home plate, and he would have them set up about six inches off home plate and would consistently hit that catcher's mitt all game long. The catcher's mitt would literally not move. So umpires would see that Maddox, what? Hit the target, which one would assume would be what? A strike. And umpires began consistently calling that pitch six inches off home plate a strike. Hitters felt that it was just a little too, oh goodness, whoa, sorry Randy. Um, but uh, hitters felt that it was just a little too outside for them to swing at, which is a pretty good observation, right? Because it's a ball, which resulted in a lot of called strikes or non-swinging strikes. Not as good of an observation as they thought. The hitters that would get frustrated or impatient and try to swing at those pitches would soon realize that they really were actually balls and not strikes as they would weakly ground out or pop out to the Braves' defense. So you see what I mean? Genius. He single-handedly expanded the strike zone in professional baseball. And my baseball buddies out there know that, like Josh and other people, they know that that's true, even if you're not a Maddox fan. And so as well, too. So he single-handedly changed it. So what's the point of all this, right? Besides, because you guys are like, that clock's ticking, man. You see, Greg Maddox spent a career, he built his career fooling all of us, mainly umpires, of course, but hiding the fact that these perfect pitches, these masterful strikes, these rays of beauty on the ball field were really just, what, balls six inches off home plate. And in the sport of baseball, that kind of deception, that kind of masking of the truth is actually praised, it's recognized, and it's encouraged. And isn't that kind of how we act sometimes with each other as we do life together and try to grow closer to Christ in the life-changing community? The perception we want to give others sometimes is that everything's great. We're all fine. We just keep hitting the target. People see us throwing strikes, and we're even praised and recognized for it, even though deep down, we feel like we're about six inches off home plate. Or for me, about six feet off, which you'll find out soon. (laughs) What I'm getting at with all these metaphors is that we struggle sometimes. We fail a lot, and we feel alone, even when we're surrounded by friends and family. And most of the time, no one knows it but you. Maybe you're in a life group where every week you share prayer requests and every week you drive away kicking yourself for not telling them what's really going on. Or maybe it's a circle of lifelong friends. They might be from childhood. They might be from college. They might be colleagues from work that you have a lot of fun with. And maybe the conversations stay lighthearted and right on the surface. But then at night, every night, you promise yourself, next time, it's going to be next time that I'm going to be more honest. I'm going to open up more. I'm going to seek their help next time. Mark already said it earlier, and I mean Vandenable, not like um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, So um, I don't know that guy. I know Mark. Um, So Mark said it earlier, to really grow the way that God intends for you to grow, to really be more like Jesus requires community. You can't do it alone, and I can't do it alone. It requires relationships, and in order to have relationships that are meaningful, it's time to get real with each other to share our failures, not just our successes, to ask for help, to seek God first, of course, but let's do it together with other people. We're called to hold each other accountable 
But how is that possible when the things we keep to ourselves are the things that we need accountability for the most? In Luke 6, I think you guys are going to start getting what I'm going with this. Jesus tells us something. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to what? The plank in your eye. I actually did this little example to Julie earlier. I was like, she was sick. She didn't think it was funny. Um, But, uh, well, Maple Grove, I'm tired of ignoring the plank in my eye. And it's time to share with you who I really am. My name is Kemper. You know that. I'm married to Julie, my best friend and public speaking extraordinaire. Um, I have two children, Cameron and Caroline. Julie and I have an 18-year-old girl, Hannah Durham, living in our basement, and we now consider her unofficially our third child, part of the family, and I apologize to Judy and Buddy if you're listening virtually right now from South Carolina, her parents. I'm known to dance, and by the way, Hannah Durham is dating our, um, our resident rocker, Jordan Chambers, or something as well, too, if you don't know. Um, yep. I'm known to dance, and by the way, Jordan's referred to as Hannah's boyfriend, like I'm uh, Julie's husband. So, um, but uh, I'm known to dance in the kitchen with my children, to pop bands like One Direction, and I'm occasionally caught dancing by myself with no children, but still One Direction. Uh, My favorite night, my favorite night is Friday night. Hannah, you'll like this. Not because work is over for the week, not because we are less than 48 hours away from Steve's Sunday morning message, but instead because... Dateline Mystery comes on NBC at 9 p.m., sometimes 8 p.m., depending on Friday TV lineup. I'm responsible for cleaning our cat's litter boxes, which I do either very early in the morning or very late at night, during which often I sing popular commercial jingles to keep myself awake. Just ask Hannah. The litter boxes are unfortunately right next to her bedroom door. I never make my own lunch before work in the morning. Julie packs it for me. She also packs Cameron's lunch for school. He's five. I get the same lunch as he does, String cheese, carrot sticks, goldfish, bologna sandwich, and animal crackers. I like to call them cookies, though. Um, you can imagine, kids, kids, they're crackers. For adults, they're cookies. You can imagine the comments I get at work. We all know they're just jealous. So, wow, this is pretty easy. This is pretty easy, right? I'm like removing this plank, right? I'm just opening right up. So I'm going to try a little harder with you guys. And we'll see what happens, right, man? <laughs> all right. I'm a very anxious, very fearful man. Man, it's already started, man. (laughs) For the past year and a half, I have met periodically with my family doctor about these issues. For the past year and a half, my doctor has prescribed for me a daily dose of Prozac. Not for depression, but for anxiety. I thought I got it all out in the first (laughs) This week, I have my first appointment with an actual therapist, psychologist. And for the past eight years, my anxiety has consisted of daily obsessive-compulsive behaviors or OCD-like tendencies that have consumed me, trapped me, and limited me. At times, I have felt so anxious that my body literally aches. I physically hurt. Within our household, we call my condition checking stuff. I don't know if Hannah knows that as much as well. She's starting to get that as well. I can't imagine how much time I've wasted in my life and my family's life checking stuff. My behaviors may include the following, taking five minutes to lock the front door, during which I may jiggle the doorknob as much as 20 times, or it may take me even longer to refill the cat's water bowl because I will fill the bowl and empty it over and over and over again as many as 10 times, or it is not uncommon for me to take a clean cup from the kitchen cupboard, rinse it five times, and then use it. Sometimes I end up not even using it, and I'll get a different cup and do it all over again. 
It is rare that I can turn off a light and leave a room. I know it sounds silly, but it's just not that simple for me. Typically, I feel that I need to turn the light back on and then off a few times before I can leave the room. When I leave the kitchen or the bathroom after using the sink, I stare at it for a long period of time just to make sure I didn't leave the water running. This will give you an idea of what I'm talking about. If you've ever noticed, I rarely walk into church, the church building on Sunday mornings with Julie. If anybody's ever noticed that. You probably haven't. You know, that's a... Typically, Julie comes in with Cameron, and a few minutes later, I come in with Caroline. But you, you guys are probably wondering, but you drive together, right? We do. You get out of the car together? We do. She gets Cameron out at the same time you get Caroline out? Yep. But she starts to walk towards the church, and I spend five minutes walking around the car, checking the doors, the windows, and the locks. Most of you probably click that automatic thingy. I don't know what it's called. That thing. Uh, once, and you just head on your way, right? It's simple. I easily click it eight to ten times before walking away, and sometimes more. I do this in my work parking lot, too. It's actually worse there. This particular behavior, and it's okay if you want to laugh about this. You don't have to make me feel bad. I try to laugh about it. has gotten so bad that I've been asked numerous times by coworkers and others if I've locked my keys in the car. At this, I usually make up some excuse so people don't think anything more of it, as I do in other situations like this when I'm caught in the act. I could go on and on about other behaviors, but I think I've painted the picture. To someone who does not understand what this is like, these behaviors may appear silly. I know. I completely understand. I know they are but they still control me. You may be thinking, just stop checking stuff, Kemper. Stop checking. It's not that easy. Trust me, I've tried. I know that it could all just be a chemical imbalance. I understand that. I've learned about that kind of stuff. But that doesn't stop me from feeling the way I do. There are days when I feel like I have a grasp on the anxiety. Julie and I call these small victories. However, more often than not, it feels that the anxiety has its grip on me. I know it's hard for Julie and the kids and I know, I, know, I know it can be exhausting for them to deal with. And they're so patient with me, especially Julie. <laughs> people, people, always, people always tell Julie, it must be so fun, man, when Kemper's at home. It must be a ton of laughs. Well, unfortunately, there are days when it's not fun for anyone and there is no laughter. And I know it's because of me and my anxieties, even though Julie never, ever makes me feel that way. I hate that, that my anxiety, I hate it that my anxiety has become such a stressor, burden on my family and on them. I hate that the time I have wasted being anxious could have been spent helping Julie with Cameron and Caroline or just spending time with my family. It breaks my heart when I get home in the evening and even my two-year-old daughter says, Daddy, stop checking stuff. I deny it. She's right. I usually am checking stuff. They're always waiting on me. And Julie, I know you're not here, but you're going to listen to this later. I'm so, so sorry. There are days that I fear that this is how I'll be for the rest of my life. In addition to the obsessive compulsive behaviors, I also have a bunch of fears ranging from health concerns, use of technology, etc., that has caused even more anxiety. I'd be glad to share those with you later, but on another day. We'll talk about it in prayer. See you at the mission. See you at the Life on Missions classes. However, the plank in my own eye extends further than just my fears and anxiety. Over the years, I've become obsessed with my work. I'm sure there's people out here who kind of know what that is like. Giving more attention to my job at times than my family. My own family. I'm a 33-year-old man who still seeks approval from his father. And I'm not talking about my heavenly father. Although, I want approval from him too. More importantly. I spent most of my life being best friends with my grandma. Man, 
She's the coolest lady you'll ever meet. Countless trips to Taco Bell, writing all-star baseball lineups on the church bulletin during service and passing it back and forth. I know that, like, Josh is doing that right now with Heather. Um, but uh, so, um, uh, playing horse with her on the driveway and watching her break a rib. No joke, she would run for the balls and break ribs. I'm a terrible grandson. Uh, hanging out with her friends and playing bridge, learning how to play bridge. Listening to her professor love for Kevin McHale, the Hall of Fame forward for the Boston Celtics. She loved his hair. Spending the night every Friday night in her townhouse where she would scratch my back and tell me stories about Grundy, Virginia. Even when we were not together, I'll never forget the countless phone conversations over the years. From filling her in on the play-by-play when I got back from an away game in high school, to sharing crazy adventures with college friends, of course, grandma appropriate, um, to talking with her to pass the time on work road trips. I still remember the last time I spoke with her. It was one of those work road trips about a week before she had the stroke. And even though she's still alive, she doesn't know who I am. And I can't ever talk to her like I did before. And I never really ever took the time to really process all that until last service. <laughs> and of course with Julie, over, you know, that's the thing. So I don't want her to do it alone as well. In fact, most of you probably don't even know that I had this type of relationship with my grandma. Right? I mean, I've got to know a lot of y'all in the room and you probably didn't even know that. But I want you to know who I am. I'm more than just the guy who gets up in front of the church and loves it as long as you give me a microphone. Right? And this one's pretty sweet. Although I got the B one, according apparently Mark got the nice one. Um, I may have a lot of fun in public, but that doesn't mean there isn't suffering going on daily inside me. And I want to know who you really are too. That's what I want to know. I want to know who you really are too. And it might not be the same feelings that I have, but I want to know those as well. And we can start to grow in our faith and be encouraged by each other by opening God's word together. In fact, it was another person, of course, Julie, that allowed me to see my anxiety and fear through a different lens, a better lens, God's lens. Listen to this. This is pretty awesome. 2 Corinthians 12, she passed this along to me. Paul's talking about the Lord, talking, the Lord's talking to Paul. Paul, he says, but he said to me, meaning the Lord said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Therefore, I will what? Boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. We can like shout I have anxiety, you know what I mean? And that sort of thing as well. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am what? I am strong. And it just doesn't stop there. The Bible's loaded with good stuff. I was sitting last night and I was like, this is good stuff. And Joy's like, yep, Bible's pretty good. You know, so um, I was like, I was like, oh, you're always the smart one. Um, so, but uh, uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane says to Peter, for though the spirit is willing enough, what is weak? The body, right? The body is weak. And Romans 8, man, in the same way, the spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit helps himself intercede himself. The spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in what? All things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. That means, yes, my anxiety and my fear and your weaknesses and that sort of thing. Not just the great things, not just our awesome skills and traits, but like he's going to work through my anxieties and fears for the good of the, he does that for the good of those who love him. And did you see where God searches us in that scripture? Not our minds, which is what I tend to be preoccupied with, right? My brain's constantly fuzzy. I'm constantly checking stuff, that sort of thing. But what does he search us? Search our hearts. You see, I've realized that in order to truly grow, to be more like Jesus, it starts with what's going on in here and not so much with what's going on up here. And by opening up 
what is going on with the ball? Uh, by opening up this more, I could start opening up this more as well and sharing that more as well. And this verse right here sort of speaks to that. For the word of God, Hebrews 4, for the word of God is alive and active. It's alive. It's a living word, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of what? Your heart, the heart. And what's great is if you ever read the message version of it, is that it actually refers to like a scalpel opening up your body, like opening up your heart to that as well. It's pretty, pretty powerful stuff. Sometimes when I'm in the midst of one of my anxiety spells, I will whisper over and over again, Proverbs 3, 5. I'll just walk around being like, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your understanding. People think I'm more crazy. <laughs> but, but I just get more and more frustrated when the checking stuff doesn't stop. I start to think, what's wrong with me? If I'm a Christ follower, I'm supposed to have the Holy Spirit inside me. I'm even quoting scripture. Now though I realize that it's about how you put your trust in the Lord. And it's with all your heart. And the rest of that verses go, and in all your ways submit to him, and he will make your path straight. How do I trust with my heart? I don't know how to wrap my brain around that. How do I submit all my ways? I don't know, but I know I can't do it alone, and I need you guys. I need your help. I can't tell you how many days I've felt helpless over the past eight years with my anxieties and fears, but knowing that God's word is alive in my life, and that I have the opportunity to connect with many of you in life-changing community, my, weaknesses, my weakness does not overshadow the sense of hope that I have. And Romans says it, and this is awesome, Romans 5, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. And get this, it's just a natural chain reaction. Because we, we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance produces character, and character what? Hope, which is pretty awesome. And then 2 Corinthians 4, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And I've been struck down by these anxieties and these fears and this checking stuff or whatever you want to call it, but I'm not destroyed because God said I'm not. The most amazing thing about this hope is that it is revealed to us in so many tangible ways. Usually when we begin to talk to each other about God's word, pray with each other about what's really going on in our lives and things like that. But there's no better evidence of hope than what God promised us through his one and only son, Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross, and his resurrection, and that's eternal hope. 2 Corinthians 4, listen, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. I mean, how awesome is that, that like what I think is the most crazy thing going on in my life is a light and momentary trouble, because there's going to be something crazy awesome eternal glory happening as well, and I want that for you too. Um, Romans 8, 16 through 18, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, right? So Christ is God's child and we are his child as well. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I mean, how awesome is that? We get to share in the same glory as Jesus Christ. I mean, it just like blows my mind, right? And we need to talk about it more, right? And that sort of thing. So in, in closing, I want to share an excerpt from a book, and I thought it started with baseball. I'm going to end with baseball. Um, those of you guys who don't know this guy, this guy's name is Josh Hamilton, um, pretty famous baseball player for not just his ability on the field, but for what happened in his life off the field. Uh, 
mega superstar coming out of high school, first pick in the draft, made millions of dollars without stepping foot on a professional baseball field um, as a signing bonus, and uh, started battling crazy addictions, crazy, crazy drug addictions, to the point where if you read this book, guys, it's, it's amazing that he's alive. Um, it really is. And uh, he credits it all to Jesus because he found Jesus um, through it all as well, too. And he actually ended up pretty much connecting more to Jesus in his grandma's bedroom, which I felt was pretty fitting for me to share um, with my relationship with my grandma. And he, uh, his main scripture that really connected him was James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God, or his version said, his uh, copy said, humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I just want to read something to you guys, because there was a night he was really struggling, and he had a dream. And I just want to share this with you guys so you guys see what this is about and that sort of thing. So, so this is him in his grandma's house. He's already opened the Bible, and now he's had a dream. In the dream, I was fighting the devil. He wasn't the classic red-horned beast, though. He was a man, a large, unsmiling man who was terrifying in his intensity. It was the same vision I had seen in the clouds above the stadium in West Virginia six years before. In the dream, I was holding a stick, or maybe it was a baseball bat, and I kept hitting him, and he kept getting back up. And I, kept hit, and I would swing my hardest and knock down the devil, but over and over he got back up. My best shot couldn't wipe him out. Eventually, I became exhausted. My swings got slower and less powerful. And just as it appeared, the devil would overpower my wrung-out body. I woke up. The dream hung with me. I couldn't dismiss the vision of the devil as a gross distortion of an ordinary man. I tried to get back to sleep, to ignore the dream lingering in my head and the silence bearing down on me from all four walls. I had never felt more alone. I had been alone for so long. All the time I was using, I was alone with the fears and the sadness and the emotions I worked so hard to kill with the drugs. But now I was truly alone, fighting the urge to use, but afraid of what reality might bring. I had no idea how hard this might get and no idea what might come next. And get, what, get this what happened to wrap up. I got up. I sat on the edge of the bed. Humble yourself before God. I looked around the room and tried to calm myself. It was no use. The loneliness scared me. I got up and opened the door. I walked out of the bedroom and through my grandma's television room. I stood at the closed door of Granny's bedroom. I was a 24-year-old man, a former professional athlete, the number one pick, a $4 million man. I knocked gently, opened the door, and walked in. Slide over, Granny, I said. I'm scared. My point in sharing this is, guys, I've left my bedroom door. (laughs) I've crossed the proverbial TV room, right? And I'm knocking on your guys' door. And I can't do it alone. And if you're on the other side of that door right now today, feeling the exact same way, maybe you're not feeling like Granny, maybe you're feeling like this guy's feeling and you're on that side of the door, then let's meet in the TV room then, right? Let's both leave our bedroom doors and meet there as well too. Um, Because that's how we're going to be able to connect more with each other is to be able to share that and just open up and admit, hey, we're scared or we're alone or we need each other. So we're going to close in prayer, guys. Here we go. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, you're so amazing. And we love you so much. And we're um, about to sing a song where it says, you stand alone. Um, and I stand amazed. And what's awesome about that, Lord, is you do. This is all about you. And you do stand alone. But we don't have to stand alone loving you, Lord. We don't have to stand alone worshiping you. We have each other to stand together in order to honor you and glorify you. So we, you do stand alone, Lord, and we thank you for bringing us all together where we don't have to stand alone. Um, and we have you especially, but we have these people around us as well, Lord. Um, we love you so much, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.